When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, a retired lieutenant colonel with the U.S. Army warns we are now in a new Cold War, this time with Russia and China, one which could quickly escalate into all-out war. Something could spark. If there is an indicator of weakness on our part, and of course the Western Europeans, if they don't arm up fast enough, especially the Germans, then I think that I would not be surprised if you find a Vladimir Putin leading armor brigades into the likes of Lithuania or Latvia, or even into downtown Kiev. David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech, is coming to Toronto October 18th, 19th, and 20th to present his shocking reversals. And you can meet David and hear this amazing discovery for yourself at Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, 40 Donlands Avenue, right across from the Donlands subway station. On Thursday, October 18th, you'll hear the reverse speech of politicians. That's 7 to 9 p.m., just $10 at the door. Then, Friday, October 19th, the reverse speech of hitmen, mobsters, and serial killers, 7 to 9 p.m., just $10 at the door. Finally, Saturday, October the 20th, I'll be hosting as David solves the JFK assassination using reverse speech, 2 to 5 p.m., $15 at the door. David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech, as heard on Coast to Coast AM and The Conspiracy Show, October 18th, 19th, and 20th, Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church, 40 Donlands Avenue. For more information, go to reversespeech.com. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs, here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Monday. And so the work week begins in earnest. And this is an earnest episode. Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis is standing by, and he says America is locked in a new kind of dual Cold War. The Russian Federation, under a populist authoritarian leader, seriously threatens the West through cyberspace and military, thanks to that country's heavy investment in sophisticated mass-killing weapons. The People's Republic of China is a great power with global ambitions led by a new kind of communist leader focused on rapidly growing his nation economically and militarily. Together, China and Russia collaborate to dominate our future, and that pseudo-alliance could well become the catalyst that leads to the prophetic end times. Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, U.S. Army retired, is an experienced and internationally known expert on national security and foreign affairs. He currently serves as a national security and foreign affairs analyst for Moody Broadcasting Radio Network and Salem Radio Network. He recently completed a year as a Fox News military analyst. His latest book is Alliance of Evil, Russia, China, the United States, and a New Cold War. Has the mystery of the end times finally arrived? Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm doing well, Richard. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on Alliance of Evil, Russia, China, the United States, and a new Cold War. You introduced sort of a new term to describe this new phase that we are in. You call it a dual Cold War. What do you mean by that? 
Well, the Russians, Russians and the Chinese are both waging war by their own acknowledgement and by their behavior uh, with regard to you know, the containment policy the United States of America has had for you know, a number of years, certainly since the end of the Cold War. It's noteworthy, Richard, that uh, as soon as the old Cold War ended on the 25th of December 1991, when the hammer and sickle was lowered at the Kremlin, that the Chinese leader at the time declared that Cold War may have ended. Our Cold War has just begun. And there's every evidence that the Chinese especially have weaponized virtually every aspect of their power to target the United States. It's not just in trade. It's not just in arms. It's psychologically, ideologically. It's certainly in a variety of aspects uh, across the human domain. This is a frightening time. I fear that it will become even more uh, frightening than was the very real Cold War that I participated on the Iron Curtain and on the demilitarized zone in Korea. And, and people forget that while it was called the Cold War, it wasn't an all-out shooting war. Lives were lost during the Cold War. Well, we fought the Korean conflict, which, of course, uh, on the books is still ongoing, and we lost many thousands of lives. We fought Vietnam as a proxy war. We fought many wars in Africa and Central Asia. And of course, in the gulags of the former Soviet Union, and of course, under the oppression of Mao Zedong, many millions of people lost their lives. So, you know, the oppressive nature of certainly the communist Chinese uh, is something that you don't think about today. But if you talk to the million Muslims who are incarcerated in the western part of that nation, you come to the realization that maybe they haven't really changed their stripes. It's just their psychological and their uh, PR message to the rest of the world. They they are much as they were. And I would argue that uh, given our concerns about you know, freedom of speech, uh, and certainly here in the United States, the uh, Fourth Amendment, uh, right of privacy, right of uh, freedom of free uh, from search and seizure, that the Chinese are very aggressive and uh, they're pursuing a line across the world that is very frightening. Do you think that it is advisable that the United States is in Britain? is confronting China head-on in the South China Sea. Yes, I know the Chinese obviously have declared the South China Sea uh, sovereign territory. They go back thousands of years and say it really belongs to us. Uh, And of course, here recently, the British uh, confronted that. We have sent B-52s and we've sent uh, large ships across the, uh, the maritime corridors through the South China Sea. Now, if you look at a map, Richard, uh, you'll see that uh, the Spratly Islands are actually southeast of Cambodia and due west of Manila. You know, they're nowhere close to China, hundreds of miles away. And yet, you know, they've been, you know, of course, claimed by a number of nations. And the Chinese, because they're bullies, uh, especially now, have pushed everyone else aside and have claimed sovereignty, even the international court. Uh, And The Hague has declared the Chinese in violation of international law by making those claims. They built 3,400 acres of small islets throughout that area. They've armed them up, and now they're declaring them to belong to them. And if you look at a Chinese passport, which I have, you'll find that they claim that on even the national document that we call the passport. Is this a hill that we should be willing to, well, I won't say die on, but I mean, is is this uh, something that we, I say we in the West, NATO, we must stand up to and, and not back down? Or is there a negotiated settlement here? What What's going to happen? Well, I hope there's a negotiated settlement. You know, I, the last people that really want to fight you know, are the soldiers. And I've you know, served in uniform 24 years. The last 16, I have, I'm still in the Pentagon. And so I know these issues very, very well. And I have dear friends uh, that are, you know, in uh, under arms and standing in the way of these adversaries. Uh, if we don't challenge uh, Jinping, uh, or Xi Jinping, uh, the president of China, who is 
articulated the China dream very clearly in terms of global dominance uh, economically and militarily uh, by the 100th anniversary, which, of course, coincides with the uh, 2049, uh, then I'm afraid that our, certainly the West, uh, as it is today, is far from going to be dominant. In fact, we may become an asterisk on history. This is a very serious threat that China poses. Uh, yes, China has its issues, but China is you know, pushing hard and has the president for life, President Xi, uh, to back him up. Now, of course, Vladimir Putin, I, we tend to kind of delegate Moscow, the Kremlin, to the ash heaps of history. Uh, don't do that. If you watch what they've been doing here, especially in the last few years, they're pulling out all strings as well. They may not have a robust economy, but what they do have, they're investing heavily in the capability of their armed forces. And of course, uh, they're expanding their reach throughout the world in ways that we haven't seen since the fall of the Soviet Union. Of course, we recently, we have now the, the Vostok military exercises between Russia and China. Is that unprecedented? It is unprecedented. It's 300,000, of course, ground soldiers. And what's unique about that, Richard, is the fact that the Chinese participated. Uh, Xi and Putin got together right on the cusp of that activity, which was on the eastern part of the you know, Russian Federation. And they declared that we're going to do this every year henceforth. Uh, I make the argument in Alliance of Evil that you know, this is the formation of a new alliance. It's a true alliance. Russia needs China. China needs Russia for a variety of reasons, which I argue in the book. And this is another indicator uh, that they're moving forward. And of course, the Russians have sold S-400 uh, surface-to-air missiles. They've just sold uh, you know, some Su-35s, as I recall, uh, to the you know, Chinese. Uh, so the technology transfer also helps the Chinese. And meanwhile, of course, the Chinese are uh, just about to start building their first nuclear carrier. Uh, they're already got the hole for the third. The second one is on sea trials. Uh, their size of their blue water Navy uh, is comparable to the United States. We're seeing the Russians, according to Chief of Naval Operations Richardson, uh, their level of activity in the North Atlantic is in concert, very similar to what we saw at the end or toward the end of the Cold War. And in fact, uh, the CNO has called this the fourth battle of the Atlantic, the first being World War I, second being World War II, third, of course, was the Cold War. The activities you know, in terms of posture around the world are significant. And what your listeners need to appreciate, Richard, is that the Belt and Road Initiative by President Xi initiated in 2013 is incredibly serious. It's not just economic. You know, yes, they are investing well over a trillion dollars. Every time they go to a country, and they're going to countries in Europe and South America, Central America, uh, Australia, and of course the Indian subcontinent, and they're going to these countries and they're going uh, and saying, look, we will build you this infrastructure uh, and of course, they're making loans that they know these countries, for the most part, cannot repay. And so they create political leverage and they create geopolitical leverage in a way that they're going to manipulate many countries across the world. Now, what a lot of people are not realizing, and this is the real danger, is everywhere Belt and Road Initiative goes, they also have behind the screen the People's Liberation Army. Every one of these ports, whether it be Zeebrücken or a port in the Suez Canal, a port in the Panama Canal, a port anywhere in the world, even in Greenland, that they will have access, the PLA will have access. Uh, what's mysterious, and you know, somebody might want to kind of look up what they're doing in Pakistan. Uh, I spoke with an Indian official very recently, and he said, look, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative is building facilities in Pakistan, of course, which is uh, the death enemy of the Indians. They're always, you know, sniping at one another, and that's why they have nuclear arsenals. And they said, look, the Chinese are building a facility there, a port facility, but it's not a deep water port. 
And so why would you build a port facility that's not deep water? And he, he argues it's because they intend to use it for uh, PLA naval vessels, uh, that they intend to use an airfield there. Of course, Sri Lanka, if you have been following, has signed a 99-year lease with China, and that's to the southeast of India. So the Indian officials are very, very concerned, rightly so, as should be anybody virtually in Africa, if you've followed all the many major projects they're pouring money into across that entire continent. Why do they care about Africa? Probably only because of the resources, and there are a lot of valuable resources the Chinese can import. And the last point I'd make before you know, turning it back to you, Richard, is when the Chinese go in to build infrastructure, they do not hire locals. They always import Chinese nationals to do the labor. That's so that they get the benefit of the labor. And of course, as a result, they get the geopolitical leverage that comes with holding these countries hostage. In terms of trade and this what some are calling a trade war, but really it's just, I see it, uh, and Trump likes to use this term, reciprocity, uh, reciprocal trade, uh, because the Chinese have been slapping tariffs on American goods and, and, and so forth. Um, is, this, is this the right maneuver to, to engage the Chinese with, with uh, stiff tariffs? Uh, does America hold the cards here in terms of, of uh, economics, at, at least for now? Well, the balance of trade is in our favor, and so the answer, I think, is yes. You know, they need us more than we need them in terms of the balance of trade. So uh, as long as we can hold them hostage to being uh, fair trade partners, as the uh, president writes in his national security strategy, which he concern, he considers our economic strategy really a major aspect of our national security strategy, which is right. It's about jobs. It's about you know the, the balance of trade. It's about the, the value of our dollar. It's about you know whether or not we're going to be able to compete in the future. It's about and, steel. Oh, it's about steel. It's about aluminum. It's about all the automobiles. It's about high technology items that are pouring in all over the world. So the Chinese understand that. Now, China at the same time is in a competitive market, especially uh, in the production of high-tech devices. And so they're ending up having to find Indonesia or Cambodia or India or other venues to produce some of the products for their larger companies. And this is a challenge for them that you know is beginning to rob them of jobs. So this you know, trade war, if you want to call it, at this time from the U.S., is really beginning to pinch them. And so uh, President Xi's trying to find what he can do you know, to grow the entire country's productivity. He has sections that are rather primitive, quite frankly. Uh, it's not these high-end areas like Shanghai and so forth where you have you know, large uh, corporate offices that look like a New York City or any major city in the world. It's you know, he's got to grow it. Otherwise, he's going to have unrest. And that's a real uh, problem that he faces, That's the, especially in the western part of his nation. I want to go back to Russia for a moment. And after the fall of the uh, wall, the Iron Curtain, uh, whether the, the, the promises uh, not for NATO not to encroach one inch uh, towards Moscow whether in retrospect the reversal of that that policy or that agreement was was a mistake in other words there was an opportunity there uh, perhaps to forge some kind of a relationship with Russia or was containment always the idea and it was always necessary well in the breadth of history we have to consider where the Russians have been and where they have not you know, we, we intervene in the Russian Civil War back in 1918 uh, with the French and the Brits in both the western part of the country and in the eastern part. You know, a little, you know, few people realize that uh, President Wilson took us to war. Uh, he didn't even tell the Congress, and that's why they call it the, the Midnight War. Uh, they, the Russians, have a long 
memory of our violation of them. Uh, and the animosity, of course, dates back before then. You can think of Napoleon, you can go much further than that. Yes, there was some expectation when, uh, when Yeltsin uh, came over and met with Bush uh, right after the fall uh, of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev, of course, set, you know, stepped back. And, and uh, when Yeltsin met at Camp David with Bush, uh, we were trying to bolster that nation. It was an economic dire straits. We gave them some aid. Uh, and we probably should have done a far better job than we did. Uh, and I think we harmed the, their not national psyche to a certain degree. And as a direct result, uh, I think that the likes of Vladimir Putin, who, of course, rose to power uh, a decade plus later and has continued to be in power uh, and is referred to by even the church leaders as their national savior because he brought back uh, kind of a, a psyche that was critical to you know what motivates most Russians today, which explains the 80% popularity of the likes of Vladimir Putin. Even though we don't particularly care for him over in the West, he is still very popular, and he's doing things to resurrect uh, that good feeling. I think the Russian people are more than willing to sacrifice dearly, as they are, in order to uh, regain great power status. And that's why on the March the 1st of 2018, when Putin hosted the, uh, the uh, I suppose, the state of the nation that he did, in the backdrop, it was fascinating because he was showing still pictures and videos of high technology weapons, hypersonic weapons, you know, space weapons, ground weapons, you know, fifth generation fighters. You know, it really looked as if this new leader, you know, of course, he wasn't new at that time, had been prime minister and president. And, but, you know, the inauguration of the fourth president uh, about uh, you know, a few weeks later, it was an acknowledgement uh, that Russia was a, a great power. And that gave a lot of encouragement to the average Russian person, even though, you know, their their life is not all that great. The food uh, isn't all that great these days. Uh, they don't have excess cash, uh, but they feel as if as a nation, uh, they are on the on the way back, and that's important to to appreciate. And that's why, you know, the confrontations, whether they're in the Baltics or along the Polish border, uh, or they're down in Syria or now in northern Africa and elsewhere, where we're seeing them, this is something that I don't think a lot of our geopolitical strategists have taken into account. The Russian bear is back in a very different way, perhaps, but very vicious and very capable. Don't forget, they own half the nuclear weapons and they've continued to modernize those. Should should we have challenged them over Crimea? I mean, Crimea is is theirs. It's beyond their sphere of influence. I mean, it, it, it's theirs. Why? Why do we challenge them on Crimea or should we? Well, I would take you one before that. We should have challenged them in 2008 in Georgia when they occupied those two provinces and they continue to have their own forces inside that. Uh, Georgia, of course, is a great ally of the United States, and we've continued to have a fairly significant military presence there, working very closely hand-in-glove, trading, uh, trading with them, but also uh, helping to arm them up, and they've helped us in Iraq, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. Now, Crimea, you know, we knew that was going to happen right after the Olympics. Uh, I can't talk about the details, but there are plenty of indicators. Uh, and we sh probably should have had, uh, you know, s unfortunately, we didn't have you know, Ukraine in NATO at the time, so we couldn't have a declaration of Article 5, which would have caused us to go to war or at least to the defense and, you know, force Russia back across the border. But of course, we've spent about a billion dollars arming them up. We've given them javelins, a couple of hundred uh, anti-tank missiles, which of course, you know, upset the people in, in Moscow. We continue to have troops well forward, uh, training, equipping, uh, and I think that, uh, you know, our continued talk about them being NATO uh, is something that is disconcerting. You know, it's it's interesting, Richard, that 
the Polish prime minister, you know, has already offered $2 billion for us to station an armor brigade in eastern Poland. And, of course, they've increased their defense spending. Uh, the same you see in places like Romania and Hungary. You know, even the, the neutral uh, Baltic states, uh, you know, you find that they're radically increasing. They all understand, for quite frankly, that, you know, the the peace dividend that we thought we were going to inherit as a direct result of the end of the Cold War in 1991, things have completely reversed now. The threat is very real. And as you indicated, the Vostok 2018 was a very clear message, a shot across the bow of all East. Eastern and Western Europe that, you know, Moscow is very serious. Hey, have you checked out my other podcast, The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone? If you love rock and roll and mysteries and the paranormal, I think you're going to enjoy The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. It's part of the Jericho Network in association with Westwood One. This week's episode, part two of the lifetimes and sudden death of ACDC's Bon Scott. The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, now available on Spotify. Theoretical physicists say that there's as many as 12 hyperdimensions. Here are just three of them. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Conspiracy Unlimited. Pretty cool, huh? Uh, here's an extra one. Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, how about one more? Conspiracy Unlimited. And the great thing is we have six hyperdimensions left. Conspiracy Unlimited. Five. Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, the author of Alliance of Evil, is here. Obviously, one of the keys uh, to meeting this challenge for the United States is to retain or perhaps regain military superiority. Uh, are, you, are you encouraged, satisfied with the, the uh, budgetary measures, 700, million, 700 billion uh, this year, 716 billion next year. Where is that money going? Are you, are you happy? Let me caveat that by explaining that half of that is for personnel. Uh, unlike when you look at the Chinese budget, and I've done some analysis of theirs, uh, much of their investment in hardware and technology is truly hidden. Uh, the Chinese spend a very small fraction of what it does to keep an armed force, a larger armed force, under, uh, you know, ready to go. Uh, so when you look at what we have, the number of facilities we have to maintain, you know, the expense of large, uh, a large sea navy, uh, blue water navy, an air force, and the the types of investments we have to make. Uh, yeah, we can probably begin the process of, you know, modernizing. Because we took a holiday under uh, Bush two and Obama, uh, and it was very serious. You know, we took our eyes off of uh, the peer type of engagements uh, beginning 2001. And I understand, you know, we wanted to go after, you know, Al Qaeda and later ISIS. And of course, in my opinion, we made a mistake with Iraq. Uh, but we we wanted to pursue the uh, war on terror, and the enemy has metastasized, spread across the world, uh, will continue for decades to be a challenge. But meanwhile, as we were focused almost exclusively across the globe on those types of activities, the Chinese and the Russians, you know, quietly and not so quietly in the last five years, really invested in matching us uh, with anti-access weapon systems, with sophisticated hardware, of course, in the cyber realm, uh, in the space realm, and elsewhere. Uh, so we're, we're playing catch up at this point. Should Mr. Trump uh, be cobbled uh, with the forthcoming election and not be able to respond uh, with a continued focus on strengthening our military capability, the Chinese and the Russians will have uh, great celebration uh, because they will recognize that perhaps they, in fact, will be able to put the United States in the rearview mirror. This ongoing narrative that won't die about Russian collusion and, and Putin wanted Trump uh, elected. Speak to that because when you look at uh, the Trump administration arming the Ukrainians. When you look at U.S. military 
um, uh, confrontations with, with Russian soldiers in Syria. Uh, when you look at uh, Trump, you know, speaking to the European leaders, you know, saying, you've got to start arming yourself. We can't continue to pay the bill. And, and why are you... Co and, and he's challenging them on, you know, they're pursuing uh, energy deals and so forth with the Russians. Do you see any evidence that Trump has not been, uh, you know, Putin's not his worst nightmare, but he's he's certainly been tougher, I would say, on Putin than Obama or, or previous administrations. No, he, he's incredibly tough. You know, I know John Bolton. Uh, I work in the same building, obviously, with uh, General Mattis. You know, I know all these folks uh, one way or another. Uh, they're tough. They're very tough on both uh, President Xi and President Putin. Uh, they know uh, what's going on. You know, we've already killed hundreds of Russians in Syria. Uh, there are others that are there that, you know, the confrontations could happen again. You know, this past week, you know, one of our uh, F-35s was chased down by a Russian uh, fighter. Uh, the chances of you know, further confrontations over Syria or even over Ukraine uh, or, you know, certainly Russian you know, bear bombers over, you know, approaching the Alaskan airspace using cruise missiles, which we know they have and they can reach our strategic assets. All of this is indicative that, you know, they're testing us. We know what they are. Uh, and I know the key advisors know what they are. Um, you know, I, I reflect on when Jim Mattis was told uh, by the Russian, you know, leadership there in Syria that the forces we were facing over in the southeast uh, were not theirs. You know, we went ahead, bombed them and killed 300 mercenaries, which, of course, are working for uh, one of Putin's friends. Uh, and they have these types of mercenary groups that are really former uh, soldiers. And when they return, interestingly, to the Russia, they return and they report out to special forces, uh, Spetsnaz headquarters. We track these sorts of things. And, and this is in the public force, so it, it's not a, a secret. Um, and so Putin is fighting his proxy war through uh, his, his conduits his friends that hire mercenaries. And then, of course, he's using his own resources uh, that surround you know, Crimea, uh, eastern Ukraine. They infiltrate into eastern Ukraine. They antagonize us in Georgia. Of course, they're working uh, diligently in Syria with the Iranians, uh, to a certain degree with the Turks, if, if they, Erdogan will cooperate, which may not be something that's um, good, bad, or indifferent at this point. Uh, and, of course, ac across the, the border with Eastern Europe, you know, we're going to continue to see this. They're going to push as hard as you can. We were just in Lithuania a few days ago uh, doing live fire exercise. We haven't done that, I don't think, ever. Um, and, of course, that's, you know, something that the Belarusians uh, are, are paying attention to. And, of course, the Russians are, are sitting on the other side of, of the border, you know, looking at us. You know, they... Having been on the Iron Curtain and, and having guarded the, the Fulda Gap, Fulda Gap, of course, is where we expected the Russians uh, to come in by the thousands of tanks. And, and I know what we were going to do there. Uh, it would appear as if uh, not in the near future, but not in the dis too distant future, that we're going to continue to see a buildup in Western Europe and obviously in you know, Eastern Europe with the Russians that um, you know, something could spark. Uh, if there is an indicator of, of weakness on our part, uh, and of course, you know, the Western Europeans, if they don't arm up fast enough, especially the Germans, uh, which is, uh, you know, very disconcerting, then I think that uh, I would not be surprised if you find a Vladimir Putin leading armor brigades uh, into the likes of Lithuania or Latvia uh, or even in, into downtown Kiev. Uh, so these are things that, you know, a few years ago, we wouldn't even have thought possible. Uh, but uh, given the sophistication, the investment, uh, and the national uh, popularity 
of, of Vladimir Putin and the things he's doing, I think they are possible today. To what extent has this whole Russian collusion narrative hobbled diplomatic efforts? In other words, President Trump and his administration can't be seen to be overly friendly with Putin or to be you know, reaching out because it's the old aha, I told you so. To what extent has that narrative uh, perhaps even pushed us closer to war? Well, I think that is that's it has been harmful. Um, you know, he, the president is forthwith. He, he'll sit down with anyone. Obviously, Kim Jong Un. He's even w- willing to talk to the leadership of uh, Iran. You know, it's it's interesting. They said, well, then talk to President. Uh, uh, what is it, Rouhani? Uh, but Rouhani's not the real leader. We no, know that. The it's, mullahs. Yes. You got to talk to the mullahs. That's right. You have to talk to the Ayatollah and. Khomeini, he doesn't want to talk to to um, Trump, uh, but he has talked to Putin, and he will talk to Putin. You know, following the summit they had in Helsinki, you know, it was laughable how the president was criticized. He you know, he he may have made a mistake in in a particular area, but the idea of meeting with your adversaries—we've done that throughout the history of the United States. You know, we we were supplying the Russians during World War II. It's not because we loved the Russians, because we hated the Nazis more. Uh, and we, we flew aircraft in there. We gave them ships. We gave them all such, sorts of supplies so they could use those supplies to kill as many Nazis uh, as they would. And they were very helpful. But that as soon as that war ended, you know, Stalin went into a... Uh, you know, a different mode. And he said, now the United States is, in fact, our enemy again, and we're going to do everything we can to undermine them. And, of course, uh, I think Putin has picked up, as a former KGB guy, he's picked up the same sentiment. And he's, of course, just reflecting what President Xi won't say publicly, but his behavior evidence is much the same. Uh, I want to... Circle back to Syria just for a second, because you talked about you know the the um, uneasy alliance with the Soviets, the uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, and cold wars often make for very strange alliances and bedfellows. And I wanted to know about Syria, and whether uh, former Senator Ron Paul suggesting that there is evidence the United States is allying with Al Qaeda in Syria. Any truth to that, and and um, uh, would it make sense? You know, that is an interesting one, given the complexity of that battlefield. You know, the the Turks are all upset that we're, you know, arming the Kurds, and of course they have the PKK, which they're deathly afraid of internally because it's about a quarter of their population, and they're afraid they're going to make a an alliance uh, and form an independent country. Of course, which we promised. Uh, at the end of World War One, which explains why they're continuing to hold out hope that the great West hope, if the West is going to help them you know, cobble together a country in the middle of that region. Uh, then, of course, Al-Qaeda, uh, Nusra, which is kind of their franchise there in Syria. Um, and they're, of course, opposed, along with other Arab groups, to you know the Assad regime, which, of course, has the help of the Shia Iranians uh, that have a facility there in Damascus, as well as the Russians that have the air base there. And, and so when you look at the complexity of that battlefield, uh, you begin to understand that uh, it's going to take a while to sort it out. And the Russians you know, are, I think, going to be in the driver's seat because uh, I'm not sure we have the stomach uh, for sustaining a a continued effort. We're about to destroy ISIS, uh, I suspect, and, and if we're willing to stay for a couple more years. Uh, in the southeast, most of them, where Iraq, Syria, and Jordan come together, you know, it, the courage of the people, the faces facing ISIS, we're overhead, we're providing the, the, the armaments, and, and we are you know, going to probably destroy them. But at the same time, uh, we're being distracted a bit by what the Russians are up to. And, you know, of course, what's going on in Idlib uh, province to the northwest, where you do find some Al-Qaeda that's blended in there. And 
the Turks don't much care about that. Uh, you know, they're more concerned about the Kurds. Uh, Assad obviously wants to take over, and the Russians want to take over as well. Uh, when you throw all that together, you know, it's hard to know uh, who, you know, to work with. Uh, so we revert back to the Kurds because the Kurds we've worked with for a long time. They have their own agenda, and we're probably uh, helping them to a certain degree to you know, solidify uh, their claim to independence. No telling what's going to happen uh, if, in fact, uh, Assad consolidates power uh, with the Russian and Iranian backing and whether or not the Kurds are going to be able to carve out an area to the northeast of Syria and kind of align themselves with the uh, sort of independent Kurds of northern Iraq. Don't know. Uh, like I say, the players are, this is such a complex arena. And even the folks that I know that are on the ground there, um, you know, it's hard to tell from day to day, except for the Kurds, who your friends are. Syria is is interesting because insofar as Alliance of Evil goes where uh, perhaps no other uh, book in terms of military analysis has gone, and that is to the Bible and how these geopolitical events and pieces of the puzzle are aligning with biblical prophecy. And of course, Syria has to be front and center there. Uh, talk to me about uh, about how this is lining up with, with, with prophecy. Well, you know, if you look at a, a number of you know, Ezekiel 38, uh, it talks about Gog, a person, and Magog, a land, a land to the north. Uh, and of course, north of what? Israel. Uh, if you look at the far north of Israel, most people like to speculate it's talking about Russia, the Russians. Um, I would argue maybe not. Maybe it's the likes of uh, the upcoming neo-Ottoman uh, Ankara under the likes of Erdogan. Uh, Erdogan has every intention by 2023 of declaring himself at the 100th anniversary of the you know, the Turkish Republic, the new caliph of the caliphate and the ruler of the Muslim world. You know, just this past week, the likes of Erdogan was up in uh, Kern, Germany. What was he doing in Kern, Germany? He was making an official visit to Germany to, uh, you know, the, the president as well as Merkel. Uh, but he also dedicated the largest mosque of 900 mosques in, uh, in Germany. And why would the president of Turkey go into Kern to dedicate the largest mosque in Germany? Well, it's because he wants to portray himself as a political Islamist uh, who can, you know, kind of speak for the rest of the Islamic world. Being the second largest religious group in the world, you know, that's a pretty powerful position if he can gain uh, leverage uh, across that, that that part of the world. So. You know, Turkey, Turkey's a frightening thing, but um, that's, if in fact Turkey is Magog, and, you know, you could argue that, uh, you know, Erdogan is Gog, then you could say, ah, oh, well, maybe there's a nexus in Ezekiel 38. Then, of course, you have uh, the other piece that people like to talk about in Revelation 16, where it talks about the kings of the east that are going to cross over the deserts and the Euphrates is going to dry up and they're going to end up fighting the battles of Armageddon in northern Israel. Well, the argument goes on to say there are 200 million of these people and everyone thinks, well, maybe because China is the largest country in the world with the largest population, maybe it's the Chinese that are the kings of the East. Don't know, but that could well be. Uh, and of course, if you trace the old Silk Road uh, from China to you know, Europe, it goes right by Baghdad and it goes right across the Euphrates. So I don't know for sure. Certainly, you know, I can understand how people can come to those conclusions. Uh, and then, of course, you know, then you can argue, well, where is America in this whole equation? If you look at uh, Revelation 12, it talks about the great eagle coming to the rescue of Israel and so forth. And, of course, people think of the symbol of the United States and the great eagle rescuing Israel uh, in the final times. 
Uh, I suspect that you know, you know, none of us know that you know, God encrypted into his word uh, China, modern Russia, or Turkey, or even the United States. Uh, but I do, I certainly believe that the scripture is correct, uh, in, but I just don't know how necessarily to interpret it. Now, in modern times, I start to look at the, all these powers. I start to look at the disarray uh, in and around Israel. Uh, I do believe that uh, especially the Jerusalem is a going to continue to be a contentious uh, piece of land for the rest of mankind's time here on earth. Uh, whether or not that ends up being the you know final battlefield where these forces of the north and the east you know, just wipe us all out at, before the Lord returns, you know, the prophecy is interesting. And I don't go hard and fast in saying this is how it's going to happen. Now, I do in my epilogue argue that uh, that there are some very interesting developments geopolitically that I think could actually lead to an end time scenario. But it's not what a lot of people that read prophecy conclude. Ah, OK. Do tell. Well, I don't want to give it all away. No, no, no. We need to go. People need to go out and buy Alliance of Evil. OK, just give us a, t a taste. Well, I argue that you know you need to look at the underbelly of China and especially at India and where India is going. Uh, India is coming of age with regard to its you know, alliance. If you look over the last 40 years, uh, India used to be a close ally of the Russians during the Cold War to a large degree because we stiff armed India. Uh, but India has a lot of capability, and they are emerging, I think, as a, a, if we're right, if we're working hard with them, they will be a good ally uh, in the near term, and I'm saying within the decade. We already have a number of very important agreements, and we're starting to do a lot more together. That's important. Uh, look at what is happening, obviously, with, with Israel and what nations uh, they're aligned with. Look at uh, a couple of them in, in Western Europe, uh, who's going to survive the, the current, you know, I would argue the, the EU probably will not uh, continue as it's been in the past. Uh, will the United States be a factor? I think for at least for the next 30, 40 years, perhaps, but I, unless we have strong leadership like we currently have, I think it's going to decline. So I put all this together in a very unique way, and that's what I want to point out here. Finally, uh, you dedicate a chapter to what the present administration needs to forestall this um, World War III, let's just call it that for now. Just again, we don't want to give it all away. But if you're if you were counseling uh, President Trump or General Mattis, what 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 would you be saying to them in terms of this this dual Cold War that we're now in? Well, I think there's general recognition. Um, what I can say, uh, which implies that I know more than I'm talking about, which is true, uh, is that you know, in the national defense strategy, uh, which is a short unclassified document, but there's also a parallel which is classified. Uh, and, and basically, as you would expect, it just goes into far more detail. The national security strategy is very comprehensive. It deals with the economic issues. It deals with cyber. It deals with our foreign relations. It deals with our, our defense strategy. It, it provides the president's view of how the world ought to be and how we're going to get there. And I think, you know, with H.R. McMaster, he wrote the thing, uh, and some people there that I know in the Pentagon, and, and they really have a good grasp of what we're facing, uh, an existential threat uh, from an alliance of Russia and China. Uh, they see the long-term implications of what President Xi is doing with technology, whether it be hypersonic or artificial intelligence, uh, and of course, the complete reorganization of their armed forces. You know, I, I could go into that, but a lot of people aren't going to understand how the U.S. military is organized. Well, the Chinese are trying to do much the same, which is very important uh, to understand and to appreciate. And of course, the Russians are doing much the same as well. So we are right at the cusp, I think, of 
uh, a beginning of a shift uh, where that alliance is going to emerge as something that ought to occupy the front pages every day. We aren't quite there because we're more concerned about the uh, the relationship among people that are vying for the Supreme Court and you know 36 year old sexual encounters perhaps. Um, these are things that are distractions from I think the more serious issues uh, that our nation faces and yet uh, it's hard to get the average American's mind around this because it is complex and it is global and it is very frightening. Is is a reset at this point with the Russians, is it too late? Well, I the only way we're going to find that out is to try. Uh, you know, we have to start the reset from where we are. And where we are is not a pretty picture because, you know, yes, they have a great cyber capability. They're interfering with us. Even the Chinese are interfering. They, the, they're arming up rapidly. Uh, we've soiled a lot of our uh, past relationships. Uh, you know, you just can't trust them. Uh, but, you know, like Reagan said, trust but verify. And we have to continue to take that philosophy with both of those nations. Uh, I, I think, you know, we can turn this around, but you need someone as tough as nails. And I think Trump is as tough as nails. He may not please a lot of people, but he is certainly pushing back against the Russians and the Chinese. He's not, you know, collaborating with them on you know, winning the election. He didn't need that. Uh, and as the sooner, you know, domestically here in the United States, we recognize uh, the fate that we are facing and that we need strong leadership and we need to get deadly serious about our future, the better off we're going to be. Are you, uh, are you encouraged? Are you positive about the future or are you more fatalistic? Let me say, I'd like to be positive. Uh, I'm not encouraged by the domestic political uh, infighting because I think politically we, we're incredibly divided. Given the adversaries outside our borders, if we don't come together, then I don't see how in the world we're going to you know, be unified and face down the adversaries that we face in the future. Alliance of Evil, Russia, China, the United States, and a new Cold War. Has the mystery of the end times finally arrived? Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, how do people get a hold of this book? Well, it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, there are a number of other outlets, Richard. It's uh, widely available. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Richard. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to tell you what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. Hey, this is Tony Merkel, host of The Confessionals, a blog talk radio podcast that brings you weekly interviews with eyewitness accounts of strange and unexplained events. From paranormal activity to UFO encounters to Bigfoot sightings, step into The Confessionals as we explore mysterious real-life stories. Check us out on your favorite podcast app or theconfessionalspodcast.com. Many thanks to Conspiracy Unlimited for having me on the air. I'll see you all on The Confessionals. Coming up on episode 126, who was alleged time traveler John Teeter? Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.